I'm beginning to talk about the difference between the big M marketing and the little M marketing. I think if you're not aligned with a CEO, almost don't take the job. That alignment is more important than how good the CEO themselves are at marketing. And so now we have the UFC championship battle in social media, which is Threads versus Twitter. From Orion X, this is the Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast here. Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen. All right. This is our episode number 29. Let's do it. Wow. 29. So we have a cartoon, I understand. The cart is full this time. The cart is full. This cartoon, I believe, is from The New Yorker, and it says it has a boss sitting behind a pontifical boss desk, as all bosses should, and he's handing something back to a guy who's looking a little disgruntled, and the boss says, no, I said I wanted compelling content that would make people be interested in our product. This is just marketing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think anybody who's been in marketing for any number of years will understand this one. That, well, this Story is just of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some time ago, I had the occasion to document what I thought were big rules of marketing as I understood them. And if I'm not mistaken, the very first slide was that good marketing is never called marketing. It's called educational, inspiring, clever and bad marketing is just called marketing. And mm -hmm. sometimes not even marketing. Sometimes it's fraud and it's called marketing. So yeah. that kind of totally resonates with me. Yeah, it's nothing worse than seeing a New York Times article. And I've seen them where they say, well, they had great marketing. And you read about it and clearly it was illegal. Why? Yeah. Is, that's not great marketing. If it's illegal, it's not great marketing. You know, great marketing <laughs> is smart, clever, good ways to get people, you know, and like follow the laws. You know, that's good marketing. But there is a lot of kind of strange derogatory stuff that has been associated. Absolutely. With it. I think yeah. matching real needs with real capabilities is good marketing. Mm -hmm. But uh, crime is not good marketing. It's just crime. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, I was going to say that you know, the word marketing has way too many meanings. And a lot of times it's entirely in the eye of the beholder. The person who's using the term means something, but not a lot. We were talking briefly in the uh, upfront. The question is, what other word? Well, there really isn't another word. But for me, I'm beginning to talk about the difference between the big M marketing and the little M of marketing. I think it's a worthwhile distinction because every company has to do the big M marketing. Now, whether they have a marketing department do it, that's a different thing, right? But the big M is the full four Ps, the full understanding of the market, you know, the full range of what you would define defined in a really good marketing class. Every company has to do all that or it cannot ever make its way in the market. I don't even mean just succeed. You know, you're doing a lot of this stuff by default and you may be making big mistakes doing it, but you're still doing it. Little M is what happens in practice where sometimes little M is the marketing department. And so some companies figure the marketing department's just responsible for social media. Well, I mean, that company, that's little M marketing. In other companies, it's the little M of the cartoon which is that if it's compelling content, can't be marketing. Marketing is all the bad stuff, whereas compelling content is way too good for, for it to be marketing. I think that contrast is really useful because 
every company has to deal with the big M of marketing. I think you're onto something and there's potential in that sort of taxonomy. Of course, we just, McKenna said, marketing is everything. So the big M marketing can become the company itself because where does it really stop? Because if you think of it that way, then it applies to really the Porter diagram with mm -hmm. customers and alternatives and the suppliers and competition and the supply chain of all of those together, which is an exercise we once did. So then it becomes synonymous with the overall company's behavior in general, in every dimension. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the CEO is supposed to do. Now, referencing our last episode, when we talked about the first P and the four Ps, the product, right? There was a discussion on why not everybody does product marketing as well as they should. My take was that many companies start without marketing. At some point, they feel that they need it. Mm -hmm. And then what they ask marketing to do is promotion. So they start with promotion. And many times that's where it stays. They don't expand into the other four. Marketing doesn't necessarily own pricing, doesn't necessarily own distribution, doesn't necessarily own the product. So what do you do when that's the reality? There's a good book by Tim Ambler who looks at financials, the financial parts of marketing. You know, they did a study among many companies. And one of the first things that comes out in the book is that no companies define marketing the same way. So I think that's one of the values of the big M, little M idea is that there's the big M of marketing. And, and the truth is, even if a company doesn't think they've done it, you know, the minute a, a startup founder and his top technical guy have lunch, they've started marketing, you know? with the big yep. M. The marketing yep. of the company has started the minute they have their first lunch. Now, when do they start a marketing department? Well, that's a different question. And that's maybe that's question. delayed a long ways. Maybe when they start a marketing department, it only does communication, right? I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can see it. And that's valid. That's the way businesses should, you know, should work. But the big M of marketing is required of everybody. And I think, you know, Regis McKenna's right. Although I will observe there is an interesting bit of complexity here. Because suppose if you're a company that makes something, then I would say that manufacturing to a degree has that same importance as well. I don't mean it's better or worse than marketing, but you know, a company has to be this integrated whole where all these parts work together and marketing needs to influence everything that goes on in the company. At the same time, the realities of the manufacturer of the product are going to need to influence marketing because you can't market ignoring the realities of manufacture. There's definitely justification to say it's all a web of interconnected capabilities and functions. And then really the discussion becomes the organizational design. Yeah. It's like, how do I organize this company? Do I want to put marketing on their sales? Do I want to put strategy on their marketing? Do I want to put M&A on their sales? I think that's really what we are at the end of the day talking about. Because mm -hmm. to your point, marketing happens even without a marketing department. Yeah. And when you do have a department, what span of control do you give it? Well, and maybe that really gets us back to the, you know, one of the topics we've continued with throughout, which is the role of the CMO. If a company has a strong CEO who also gets the marketing of the company, that's going to change a CMO's role. If the CEO doesn't have that strength, then you need a CMO that's much different. Maybe that's part of the problem we have with how the CMO role is so inconsistent. You know, I mean, every company you go into, the CMO does something different because the marketing department does different stuff. Again, if you have a strong CEO who gets marketing, they may do a, a lot of it themselves and then want a CMO to take up what they're not good at. The way I have formulated that is, 
alignment between the CMO and the CEO. I think that is mandatory. I think if you're not aligned with the CEO, almost don't take the job. Now, that alignment is, in my view, more important than how good the CEO themselves are at marketing or not. They could be, they could not be. How they manage it, nevertheless, is really important. And whether you can work together collaboratively, cooperatively, everybody knows what they do. If they have a great idea, that's great. If you have a great idea, that's great. At some point, things need to get done. Occasional disagreements, fine, right? That's all in the spirit of collaborative growth. But that alignment is really critical in my mind. Yeah, if we're, you know, it's just so many things. If we're all focused on making the company successful, so many things go well, especially if the CEO and a CMO share a vision for how marketing contributes to the company growth. If that's there, almost everything else can be sorted out and it could work really well. And it's certainly not always the CEO's fault. I mean, I know a lot of marketing CMOs that, uh, you know, I've heard of that come in with, I don't know, the latest shiny bobble. And a lot of CEOs know about shiny baubles and are skeptical and should be. And so there's going to be an inherent conflict in a case like that. If a, if a marketer comes in and all they love is chasing fads or shiny baubles. Yep. Yep. That's right. That's right. So let's go to our second topic. I was going to do a cute segue by saying, speaking of social media, (laughs) 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 but the next topic actually is about social media and a topic of our times right now. So, well, I know, I mean, I'm sure nobody's heard about this, but um, apparently there's this company called Meta, which we all know as Facebook and Meta has uh, come out with some new app called threads and it's not about selling clothes and finding what you're going to wear next weekend it's supposed to be their competitor to twitter and so now we have the ufc championship battle in social media which is threads versus twitter as it develops and kind of hit strongly in the past week it's been building but in the last week there was a lot of discussion amongst people i'm connected with on twitter about threads and a fair number of people off testing it out and things of that sort. So here we are. We got a new a new major battle going on in social media. Yeah. So I'm going to give you my take, and I'm curious what you think and what our listeners think. So I think Twitter has been inviting competition for a good while now. You know, the moment you cause at least some kind of a perceptible exodus of people, that's a signal to your competition that maybe the barriers to entry are lower. Maybe your product is not as sticky as they thought it might be. Now, social media is pretty sticky because once you set up those networks, it's a pain in the neck to recreate them. But then if anybody has the wherewithal to address that, maybe Meta, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, that kind of juggernaut can do. So that's interesting. Now, my observation, if you think of Google Plus or many other social media competitors that tried to go against Facebook and didn't do it, well was that I thought Facebook had the best recommendation engine that as soon as I got on Facebook, it would just uncover old friends and old colleagues in a way that was very almost magical to me. Say, wow, yeah, I do want to reconnect with that person. Oh my God, it's been 20 years. They don't seem to be doing that with threads. The threads recommendation engine isn't very good, at least for me. Everything that it's recommending me are things that I really have no interest and I've had to struggle to look for my friends over from Twitter and Facebook back into. Now, I must say that I did not have an Instagram account and you need to have an Instagram account because they're building this on top of the Instagram infrastructure. And that's important for scale, for monetization infrastructure, for the software, for even your social graph. 
but there's an assumption in there that you want to follow your Instagram network for text as well. And that maybe that may be true, but for somebody who did not have an Instagram account like me, that's not been working. So it's very, very slow start for me. I've assumed, because you hear you have that same challenge, because I assumed that it was probably, you know, just me. What I have done is I keep all my business on LinkedIn, not much, and on Twitter, most. You know, that's where I'm most active. My Facebook is personal, and my Instagram only exists because I help uh, to uh, help my wife and help a good friend with their Instagram for their businesses. And as a result, my Instagram is highly inactive, and all my connections on Instagram are unrelated to my core business. So I assumed when I got on last night, and I've only barely scratched the surface of threads, but first of all, it's only on an app. And I got on, and the screen's not big enough to see much. You can't really see too many connections. Searching was limited, and everything I saw was meaningless to me. I figured it might just be that, but it may be that they haven't sorted some of that stuff out yet. I think here's the bigger question to me. Brian Arthur, an economist that studied complexity a lot, has developed a theory of increasing returns. It's a theory that's been around for centuries, but it got kind of left out of economics for a long time. And what increasing returns means is, says is that sometimes as a company grows, it can get to a point where it gets what they call lock-in. And once you reach lock-in, it's almost impossible for anybody to challenge you. Now, lock-in sometimes is technology. Sometimes it's relationships with vendors, which is why v, uh, VHS had a lock-in against Sony's beta is VHS beat them to all the relationships with studios and video stores, and it essentially built an impenetrable barrier for beta. In this case, I think the barrier to some degree is this massive network of connections. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got 3,000 connections on Twitter. You know, it's not the 100,000 or a million that a lot of people will boast of. But, you know, I don't really want to have to go rebuild all of those. And that creates a big barrier for threads to have to overcome. So that no matter how brilliant the software on threads, unless somehow that gets overcome. For example, I'd love to be able to just port my users to threads and see what happens, you know, my connections. So if I could just export my connections from Twitter and import them to threads, maybe I'd be happy, but I just don't think Twitter is going to make that easy. And I'm not sure how possible it is. So I actually worry that we're in a situation where, for threads, where despite the weight of meta behind it, it, it could just end up being that Twitter, despite their missteps, has a lock-in that's going to prevent them being able to. I wonder if uh, you can sync your network to your contacts on your laptop or phone, because many of them gladly get the data out of your contacts and then go over there and then up, you know, download it here, yeah. upload it there. Upload it Maybe that might work. Maybe I will give that a shot to give it a boost. But organically, the recommendation engine has not been as good as Facebook was. Well, I guess I think there's definitely that. And I think also, I mean, my God, I've spent 15 years getting to this point on Twitter. I don't really want to spend five years getting back to this point if I switch to threads. It could happen faster, but unless it can happen very fast, like three or four months, I don't think I have the patience to uh, shift to a new thing. Right. Of course, you know, I have my own curmudgeonliness and dislike of things like, you know, I mean, Twitter, I think a lot of people are angry at Twitter as I am because a lot of these changes have been unnecessary or they seem that way to those of us who are users. Did this stuff really need to happen? And why is it making all of our lives on Twitter far less interesting? That is a struggle. I think that's that's real. I think if there's some aspect of the company that you don't like, 
that's a very real reason why you might not want to be there. And it has to be counted. And I believe that's a non-trivial portion of what's going on with, with Twitter right now. Yeah. So uh, Rory Sutherland notes that research into bank accounts shows that essentially the reason people are slow to move their bank accounts isn't how good the deal is that you might be moving to, but how much fear you have of it being a disaster. In other words, you know, we know the problems we're living with on Twitter. We have no idea what the problems are that we have to live with on threads. And so there's always some sense that it could be a disaster over there. And am I really willing to give up what I've got in order to maybe get something better? But, you know, it's a risk reward equation or a likelihood, right? We're playing the odds. How likely is it that threads would be any better? Just can't tell that at this point. But, you know, I think that's why you don't want to alienate your customers, because if you do it, if you do enough of that, they might do it just to hurt you, not for them to get a better deal. It's just, hey, you know, you just made me so angry that I don't care I'm going to get a worse product elsewhere. I just don't want you to have my business anymore. That happens a lot. With airlines, it happens a lot. <laughs> so funny to think of Mark Zuckerberg being the good guy in this relationship. I'm still working on that one, okay? <laughs> I think also, another thing I was interested with about this is that it is makes sense that Facebook is going after this because their meta pursuit turned out to be such mediocrity for them. I won't say it was a disaster. Who knows if it'll be a disaster in the long run, but fundamentally- The metaverse activity? Yeah, the metaverse activity and the idea of this metaverse. And clearly that hasn't happened the way they envisioned, isn't likely to happen the way they envisioned. And so they do need something else. And maybe Zuckerberg is smart to say, maybe this is a, you know, maybe that uh, Elon opened an opportunity and they're trying to step into it. So that seems smart. Yeah, I believe that's right. Now, having said that, I do think that metaverse activity is good and it will pay off. I think they were too early, but they also owned the term in a way. They had the first mover advantage. Now with Apple coming into that market, that validates it, but also raises the competition. But I think that long-term, it will have cost them a lot of money, but it will probably serve its purpose. Yeah, I think where they got themselves in trouble is there was more belief that it would be short-term. And I think that maybe is what, Mm -hmm. you know, with, with all the announcements, the implication, whether it was explicit or not, was that this is going to happen. It's going to happen now and we're Facebook. So it's happening fast. And it, it didn't on that, that schedule. So I wanted to bring up one other, one other thought around this, which is I was fascinated by the people. It's all the announcements about how large of a mass audience had appeared on threads suddenly. And within a few days of it going live, they were talking, what, 15 to 20 million people on uh, threads. And I saw that and I was instantly reminded of Google Plus because when <laughs> Google Plus came out, it seemed like if you ever searched on Google, you somehow became a Google Plus member and they would use that as part of their account. And so I think there's a real serious question of, you know, yeah, they got 15 million accounts on threads. What does that mean? You know, is that significant or is that just a, one of those where you just go, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, come back to me when you got something serious to report. You know, they were reportedly up to 70 million within a few days. Oh, God. And it is true that you could not create an account without already having an Instagram account, but also it wasn't automatic. You needed to take action, but taking that action was not a very difficult thing to do. So yes, certainly there was a, I mean, the positive spin is that signing up was pretty frictionless if you already were part of the Instagram network. But the point is how active you are. And I think that 
in addition to recommendation engine, the other thing that you need is for people to actively post. And I'm not sure that's happening yet. I think everybody's there just to sort of breathe the air and see how things look. Well, shall we move on and talk yeah. about another kind of marketing? A, uh, an article appeared this week from Mark Ritson. He's out of Australia, writes a lot, primarily an author these days. And he has, in this article, he said, hey, it's time for us to stop dissing DTC, direct to consumer, because it's not, are you this or are you that, both direct to consumer and selling to consumers through retail are both valid ways to market. And my response was, duh, that needed an article. But, you know, give me your response because you had a similar. My, well, in general, there are a few things that cause me to ask the question. It's not, you know, sometimes the answer is very, very valid. But my question was, who was dissing it? Was anybody dissing it? Because I was not aware of anybody dissing really any of this. Maybe it's the company I keep, but most of the people I talk to, such as yourself, are pretty comprehensive in their view of everything has its place. And, you know, very, very occasionally, very rarely is something eligible to be ruled out completely. Usually what yeah. gets ruled out is just, you know, things that shouldn't be done and aren't effective. But so that was my question. And I don't know. I, but if people were just saying it, yeah, they should quit doing that. <laughs> I think what's tricky here is he omitted, I think, in the article, kind of what was really going on behind things, which is venture capital discovered DTC that they could generate quite a bit of hype and essentially started trying to make companies based on the idea that they could become very large as direct-to-consumer companies. So Warby's, you know, mattresses, you know, these different kinds of direct-to-consumer products, the idea hit in venture capital that they could invest in these, never have to go to retail and just make them big as digital selling, which is essentially direct response, the world I came from, marketing. And that idea was really big, got promoted really big. And so I think what maybe the dissing is people who are discovering that idea was really wrong. And where the idea goes wrong is where it's always gone wrong. We've always known that there's the ability to make some sweet profits in direct-to-consumer sales at a certain size. But if you need to scale to mass market, you cannot do that through direct-to-consumer sales. If you want to scale to mass market, you've got to go into retail and you've got to have distributors. You've got to play, you know, that's where the volume comes. That was true when I entered the business and well-known, actually, when I entered direct response marketing in 1993. You know, well-known at that point, and it hasn't changed since. And in fact, a lot of my work, my first work was, you know, showing companies the, if you do this direct response, here's what happens at retail. And you generally were looking at five to 10 units sold through retail if you had good distribution for every one you would sell directly by phone or by website or whatever. So the mass market has always been there. You focus on a thing called dude wipes. And, you know, it's a narrow market, a play that would be really lovely at a certain size and people will make some nice profit out of it. If they ever want to be scale, they're going to have to go to retail. And it's just the classic example of that. So for his thinking this was a big breakthrough, I mean, I kind of went back to Jesus, we've known this for a very, very long time. Yeah. It reminds me of our conversation a few years ago when I was calling these digital dumping, that you come in with a digital model and you almost intentionally undersell mm -hmm. and you might even accept losing money, making it up on volume and showing a really wide network and adoption and usage. And then you start hurting 
the established players sufficiently and they're under pressure by their boards and by everybody else, go digital, go digital, and then you go get acquired by them. And then as soon as they acquire you, they have to actually do real cost accounting and then they have to raise the prices, they have to change things, they have to... So, you know, in principle, they could get a digital channel out of this and a software stack out of this, and that's not nothing, but that probably would have been cheaper to just build in-house if you knew what you were doing. So from one side, it's digital dumping. From the other side, is just the cost of digital transformation. Yeah. Do I hear Dollar Shape Club? Uh, exactly. You know, I mean, exactly. to me, they're the poster child for digital dumping. They've never made a profit. They put out a lot of hype, making it appear that they were super successful. But in reality, every product they shipped, they paid the customer to take. Now, okay, did they literally? Of course they didn't literally. But by underpricing, someone is paying the customer to take their product. I once did a campaign where we tried to sell something on air. It didn't sell on air. I knew it wouldn't. You know, the creative team had, you know, I was who I, they hadn't listened to the advice of how to make it sell. And uh, when it didn't, they said, well, okay, we'll stop trying to sell it. And we're just going to give away stickers. And we found out that we could give away stickers really fast. You know, people <laughs> love getting stickers, but you know, it's, those are very different things, you know, to ask people to call, to get information or start taking a step into a sales process that, you know, the customer knows they've got skin in the game the minute they do that. So if we're, you know, giving away stickers, you can give away bazillions of stickers. And if you're willing to underwrite the cost of your products, you can give away bazillions of those. I still think, and I know there'd probably be a good long discussion to try to sort this out, but I still think that that's where Uber and Lyft are stuck. You know, they were able to lose a lot of money early on. And so they underpriced their products. Now that they're attempting to make profit, the opening has come up. Taxis are coming back a little bit. I mean, I think we're going to end up with a really rich mixed market as a result, but they're still struggling to find a way to profit. And they, of course, had the benefit of their competition, no pun intended, actually being asleep at the wheels. Yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> not, not only asleep, but driving cabs, you're worried about their fundamental safety. Right, right. Or you, or you order a cab and it doesn't show up. Yeah. They, they actually did seem to have a market opportunity there. Mm -hmm. How exactly to go serve it? You know, we've observed it. It's taken them a very, very long time to start showing some profits. Well, I think that, you know, one of the mistakes they made, it's a common mistake out of this uh, direct-to-consumer venture capital ploy, is the idea that you can buy market share and somehow eventually it gets big and it makes up for the economies of scale. And that very often isn't true. And I think that's what we discovered with Uber is their economies are, they've got an individual per ride cost that you can't make up for by economy of scale. So they, they kind of went in. I'm, I've written a blog post calling it offering a premium product at a discount price. And you know those sell really well. The problem is you lose money at it. What you do get is a database of yeah. data. Mm -hmm. Now, if that database has that kind of value for you, then more power to you. It's really highly questionable that it does. I think that's the problem. I think that we've bought into the idea that data has incredible value. I mean, there's all those comments out there like data is the new oil, right? I mean, there's a bunch of those things that have implied the idea that data has incredible inherent value. And I think that these companies are discovering it doesn't. You know, what's Uber going to do with their data? Well, they can serve, they can uh, deliver food with it. Does the data really provide them any advantage there? Or, you know, is it just a mailing list? 
I mean, an email list is not bad, but where is the value in your data? Back in the go, going back again to DR direct response business, a lot of people would sell their product directly and then sell access to the mailing list. And there was pretty good money to be made there, but what it would do is take okay profits and make them better profits. Mm. What it couldn't do is take a loser campaign and make it a winner campaign. And I suspect that maybe is still true in data. I don't know. You're much closer to data these days. so I think the, the way I see it, and if you keep the analogy of data as the new oil, data is crude oil. And crude oil is dirt. It's, it has some value, but that's not the real value. It has to be refined, and it has to be refined further. And there's a whole supply chain before it becomes a plastic gadget that you're willing to pay a lot for. And I believe the same thing with data. So if you think of a data supply chain, the initial phase of that data supply chain, the common commodity bulk data, that's pretty commoditized. That doesn't have a lot of value. You have to manipulate it, process it, learn from it, this, that, and the other before you have a data product that can command the price. And that's one way to make sense of that analogy and carry with it. Yeah, I was just trying to look up here. You know, if, if we take that one and say, okay, what's a barrel of crude oil cost these days? If we take a barrel of crude and then how many gallons are in it and then compare it with, you know, even the price of the pump for, uh, you know, unleaded gasoline, obviously the unleaded gas is worth a lot, but crude oil is just simply a commodity. And the only people who make money with it are the ones that are able to provide it in massive amounts. And so if we take that analogy back to Uber, sure, they're big, but is that massive enough for it to turn into really good profit? Are they in Lyft the OPEC of data? Or is it just <laughs> simply a uh, kind of a nicety of, okay, we, we can make a little money by selling the, you know, selling the data, but it's not going to make the difference between success and failure. Uh, but I think you're right. A lot of the a lot of these operations that were all digital got to the point, and maybe the reality is, as they ran into the difficulty of being profitable, they started kind of you know place their bets on well the data is going to be worth something, because they didn't have many options for seeing a way to profit. So there was kind of a, a wishful thinking. There was definitely wishful thinking, and I think there's in fact like TV interviews with VCs and CEOs of these companies saying things along the lines of, well, if I have a million customers or a billion customers, there's bound to be ways to monetize that. I don't know what they are yet, but there's bound to be. How can there not be? But then that reminds me of the joke that was going around a few years ago where a billion digital users go to a bar, nobody orders a drink, and the bar gets sold for $3 billion or something. <laughs> <laughs> like that one. I'll, uh, I'll keep that Something in mind. I think, I've, I think I've seen business plans like that. <clears throat> All right. That's a good fun place to conclude this episode. <laughs> oh, I think it's great. Yep. All right. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Doug. Always, Thank you. Always Happy summer. And fun. All right. Absolutely. Yes. Take care. Happy summer, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.